From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Accelerating Innovation Accelerators, Kickstarter Kickstarts Circularity, Hunter Lovins on a Finer Future, and Can the UN Climate Summit Change Anything? It's Good Cop, Bad Cop, this week on 350. It's December 7th, 2018. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me by Skype from her perch in New Jersey is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Bonjour, Joel. Hello. Bonjour. Yeah. You feeling French today? Feeling French. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm thinking Anything. about you it- racking up frequent flyer miles and where I'd really like to go. But uh, yeah, you were on oh. planes this week. Tell me about yeah. it. Yeah, I'm on planes the next couple of weeks and then get a rest for a little bit. Um, yeah, I was in uh, D.C. earlier this week. I uh, spoke at the Wall Street Journal CEO Council event, uh, quite a star-studded D.C. Politico and uh, and business event, about uh, 120, I th- I'd guess, um, uh, CEOs from around the world and uh, a pretty interesting crowd. A very diverse crowd, I hear. <laughs> uh, diverse in terms of not really. I yeah. mean, it's, uh, it's uh, overwhelmingly white male, mm-hmm. uh, both in the audience and, and on stage. We had, you know, a lot of the D.C. establishment on stage. Uh, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, Mitch McConnell, Steny Hoyer, the minority leader in the in the House for the Democrats, and and a bunch of others who I'm not thinking of right now. So why were you there? Uh, I was there as the guest of, of Tech Mahindra. Well, Tech Mahindra Ooh. is one of the largest uh, Indian conglomerate companies, or at least the Tech Mahindra is a part of Mahindra Group. And um, they had me come speak to a private breakfast, about 30 or so CEOs, to talk about uh, what else? Business, climate change, and technology. A very vergy kind of thing. But that's very much there. They're uh, all about using AI and data uh, technologies for good, and they're doing a lot of that. You'll hear an interview I did a little bit later in this uh, episode with C.T. Lakshmanan, uh, the uh, president of of uh, the uh, business enterprise uh, group at uh, Tech Mahindra. So I, I was there, and then I did a bunch of interviews at the Tech Mahindra booth, um, very much like we do at GreenBiz, there in Verge, the studio kinds of things. So a number of CEOs coming by and talk for few minutes about uh, what's going on in their world and the world of technology and all that. So it was a very interesting uh, 24 hours there. You feel like, I have to ask this before we move on, but do you feel like you made any breakthroughs or, I mean, how was your, how was the reception to what you were having to say? You know, it was quite good. I mean, and everyone from uh, the folks there from Dow Jones, uh, the host of the event, uh, owns the Wall Street Journal, uh, to a lot of the audience members. I mean, they, they, they get it. It was really, you know, the title of the talk, as I, I think I wrote about in in the Green Buzz newsletter uh, on Monday, was called The Climate Change Opportunity. Uh, you know, sort of t- looking at, you know, well, 
this is going on. There's a big business opportunity here, not just for to make money, of course, but also to improve operations and and work positively with uh, with communities. And so, talking a lot about the role of technology, a positive role in addressing climate change, and of course, not being too Pollyannish about it because there's there's challenges around uh, energy use and privacy and security and all kinds of things that we need to be dealing with, but. I mean, people understand that, and I think people are looking at. Um, it, it still surprises me how much business executives, not just CEOs, but business executives in general, still see climate change as a regulatory cost of business. There's, you know, regulations, whether they're in, in the U.S., probably not, but elsewhere, um, around reducing emissions, and there's a cost to that. And how do we, you know, how do we work with that? as opposed to, you know, all of the other parts around more efficient operations and smarter new uh, capabilities and uh, the circular economy that's enabled a lot by technology. So it's still uh, it's still a big uh, learning curve that uh, needs to go on out there. And, um, you know, I feel great about the ability to go out there and talk to these groups uh, of, from uh, high level to not so high level about the opportunity. So I'm, uh, it's, it's uh, an exciting time in, in that regard. As scary as it is, it's an exciting time. And I am jealous to share that you're about to go to another exciting place, Poland. Yeah, Poland in December. <laughs> I don't know. Be careful what you wish for. Uh, I don't know why the uh, UN always has these COP events. Uh, you know, I've Paris, Copenhagen. Yeah, there was one in Cancun a few years ago, which unfortunately I missed. But yeah, this will be. I'll be going to COP twenty four this uh, heading out this weekend. I'll be there next week and and podcasting from there for next week's uh, episode and doing a bunch of interviews and things while I'm there. Mm -hmm. And boy, I got got a busy few days. Yeah. Um. You know the um. You know I sort of am called upon a lot now to moderate. Uh, things and they do do interviews on stage. My I should make make my tagline uh, something like everything in moderation. Uh, but um, <laughs> I'm in a, the World Climate Summit, the Sustainable Innovation Forum, the We Are Still In conference, uh, a couple of other things that I will be involved with over the five days I'll be on the ground in Poland. So looking forward to that and seeing what's going on. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, COP. 24 in a minute. In fact, let's do that right now and the week in review. So while we're on the topic of COP24, um, had this uh, really interesting piece by our good friend James Murray, the editor of Business Green over in London, uh, talking about, you know, can the UN Climate Summit deliver? A, a terrific essay on What's at stake? What's the possibilities? Why you should be optimistic about the uh, the gathering? Why you should be pessimistic about the gathering? And it's just a, a wonderful scene setter. But I I think as someone who's never been to one of these gatherings, I I always kind of scratch my head about like what what goes on at them, right? And I I I just don't I've never been involved. So I was I really learned a lot from reading this because it made me really understand what exactly they're trying to accomplish. And, and the big the big takeaway and what Poland, of, of course, as the host co country would really like to see as a sign of success is this rule book. So what does it mean <laughs> um, to report on your emissions? And um, so the idea is to 
come up with a way of standardizing how countries report, update, and, and strengthen their, their commitments. Um, and so that's one thing that's at stake here. And, and so Murray, the, the author, James Murray, seems to be pretty optimistic that that will happen because it really would be embarrassing for the host country to, to not have that happen. So they have a lot at stake. But there's all these sort of like random ironies about this this conference, which make you go, oh, just, ugh. No, for number one, for one thing, um, and I didn't know this, but it makes sense. Poland is extremely dependent on coal. And um, one of the sponsors of the event, indeed, is a coal company. And while the Trump administration was at the last COP event um, and kind of a low-key, I guess, way. It was sort of on a side doing um, you know, some, some briefings on why fossil fuels are great, blah, blah, blah. Well, here they're really talking that up. Um, they, they're, they're, they're pushing the clean coal agenda and so forth. So one of the things that they're calling upon is, is the um, sort of inclusivity argument. All right? So are we moving too fast to leave people that don't have power now behind? You know, is it too fast? Is it too fast? And so the, there's a lot of, I guess it, it's the FUD, FUD factor. It's something that I used to deal with in technology is the fear, uncertainty, and doubt, right? And I'm sure other industry sectors use that term as well. But, you know, as much as you can do to to make everyone else wonder and doubt the other side's um, thing is, is, you know, sort of the game that people play. So, um, you know, that's the pessimistic side. I, I don't know what your thoughts are going into this, what you're expecting. I'd love to hear that, um, if they differ at all from, from what James is writing. You know, what, what is it you're looking for what, that would be a sign of success in your mind? Well, so there's two different real cops in, in a certain sort of way. One is the official uh, UN uh, event, which is for and about governments. I mean, business isn't in the room. NGOs aren't in the room. The investment community is not in the room unless it's a sovereign fund, I guess. Um, and so, but I, I like to be where the where the corporates are going to be. And there, there's a whole slew of events going on, uh, some big ones, some smaller ones, uh, where the companies gather to talk about this stuff. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it is a weird cop uh, in, uh, in terms of this time and what's going on in the world. Um, there's, you know, as you said, there's this coal obsession, and Poland is a pretty coal obsessed place, and, and Australia is now uh, uh, coming back to, to to coal. We've had, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia and the oil producing countries ramping up production. What's going on in Brazil with a new president who wants to develop the the rainforest? Oh yeah, and then we have the United States, the recalcitrant, the outlying negligent asleep at the wheel you know government and the second biggest emitter in the world of greenhouse gases you know and in the midst of all this the, during during next week there's going to be a critical brexit vote uh, and uh, Emmanuel Macron the French president who's been one of the great uh, climate action advocates is mired in this uh, yellow vest protest around the higher tax the tax on diesel uh, pollution and and so Wow, I mean, it's a lot going on to be talking about this. So it'll be interesting. I'm not answering your question in terms of what will success will look like because I'm actually not that tuned into the UN process. Uh, I just, uh, you know, I, I see the, the lens. The I see the world through the lens of of the private sector, and so I'll be 
listening in on those conversations, talking to them and reporting back to everybody here listening about you know, what the mood is, what they're thinking about, uh, what, if anything, has changed in the last year or so. And, um, and then, you know, the, this is a buildup to uh, COP25, which I don't think we know where well, it is. Well, right. It's, it's not in Brazil. Brazil. <laughs> yeah, we know it's where it's not yeah. going to be. Uh, but COP25 is, I, there's going to be, I think, it's a more significant, it's one of the big cops, mm-hmm. if you will, uh, where the uh, be, uh, you know, sort of looking halfway into this process at, at some of the big uh, the, the national commitments and, and where we are on that. So we'll see. I don't, yeah. I, I don't know what to expect, to be perfectly right. honest. You know, one thing I am also looking for, obviously, aside from the whole rule book thing, is I'm going to be watching the sort of signals on carbon pricing um, because that conversation has gotten much louder here in the United States over the last six months um, there's all sorts of people proposing random things we know that will probably not come to pass, but it's definitely a dialogue. Um, gosh, I read a story this week in Canada where like the, the major business council up there, including all of the people in charge of the oil sands areas, right? All the big CEOs in char- are really advocating for a carbon tax or carbon price of some sort. So I think um, that might be an interesting sort of meme to watch, if you will, um, it's coming out of COP as well. Yeah, lots going on. We'll see what's happening down the road. And speaking of down the road, let's turn to a piece we ran this week by William Dreyer, research analyst, transportation innovations at Navigant Research around autonomous trucks. Right. So we spend a lot of time writing about passenger vehicles in the autonomous sense. And this is a piece on why trucks and uh, other things, actually, not just trucks, are maybe going to be the game changer for really the, the corporate sector. I think when you see what's going on in the, in the experiments, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's several different reasons why it just makes sense for a commercial fleet to be moving their vehicles, their safety, right? So it's the whole collision mitigation issue. Um, and, and based on the level, the various, various levels of autonomy, right? There's five different levels and even a, a level three is just so much more compelling in terms of safety and, and so forth that it makes all sorts of sense for commercial fleets to be up, upping their game, if you will. Platooning, right? So that you we hear a lot about this, and it's this sort of the, the idea that uh, there's a lead truck, and, and then there's there's others that will be following behind, and that that will save all sorts of fuel. I think for the lead truck, of course, only only 5.3%, the others up almost up to 10%. Uh, they, and autonomous vehicle technology is really important for that because it, it kind of keeps them all braking and accelerating at the same rates. And then just, you know, I just, I think as far as Efficiency, I, I, and this, is, this gets into the personnel issue, right? It, whether there's enough drivers, whether the salaries are, are compelling enough for a driver, the, the whole issue of drivers you know, needing to sleep and so forth. And, and, and I actually, as someone in my, my uh, family network is a, a truck driver and he's constantly going back and forth across the United States. And if you think about just sort of that livelihood and how it might be changed by these vehicles, I think it's, I think it's um, there could be some quality of life changes that are important. At the same time, yes, uh, automation could mean that there are maybe fewer truckers needed or different sorts of truckers. You know, maybe I have more of a technology background. 
you know, that's always the game and the balance that, that you play with this human versus machine thing. But just a, a nice, compelling reminder that this is not just about passenger vehicles and, and so forth and the autopilot and your Tesla. It's really about efficiency and safety and true business advantage. Yeah, well, not only is it not just about uh, that, but it, I think it's very clear that the the road to autonomous vehicles, if you will, is going to really be uh, led by commercial vehicles, that they will see trucks and buses uh, and delivery vans, uh, I think, being uh, proving that technology well before there it's it's become uh, widespread and ubiquitous on, uh, on on the passenger side and so this is where that technology is is I think going to really prove itself and you know and to some extent uh, you, you know if we can do it in a truck we can do it anywhere but there are fewer of them and and uh, they tend to go on you know fewer routes and bigger streets I think maybe makes it a little bit easier but this is i think how we're going to get to an autonomous future and yeah like all technologies there will be downsides there will be accidents there will be people out of work but this is uh, one of those changes that's you can't really stop it's coming at us like a truck so meanwhile if you want to kick me let's talk about kickstarting <laughs> sorry i was terrible transition you're just full of yeah, puns terrible. this week Joel, you're so good Speak the master speaking of segways no that's an old joke too uh, oh, um, uh, yeah you did this piece heather on uh, kickstarter and they, how they're encouraging designers to consider circularity and other environmental factors uh, what's going yeah. on here this is just a, a real quick story, uh, if you will, a fun story on Kickstarter's ambition to help its designers think in more uh, environmentally friendly ways. And I, I didn't know this, but by way of background, Kickstarter is a public benefit corporation. They did this three years ago. Um, and, and so as part of that mission, they've been looking at ways they operate, of course, but they all, also figured that they could play a huge role in helping inventors rethink what they were making and how they were making them and where they were making them and so forth. So it turned to its community and, and also to EDF, uh, the Environmental Defense Fund, to help come up with it basically as a resource center for its designers. So um, the, this center basically gives ideas for uh, materials choices that could help um, make a product more durable for design sensibilities that make it easier for products to be taken apart or assembled and so forth. So with the idea that, that you could repair them more easily or that you could swap out components. It also has more information about you know, picking, picking materials that aren't going to be scarce. So like if, if a sort of startup is thinking about a new product, you know, and if they're, they're going to choose a, a specific type of material, like, a, a, I don't know, steel versus whatever, or a type of plastic, this kind of plastic versus another, or even uh, cushioning, organic starch cushioning um, instead of styrofoam. It helps people understand the, the, the ways that they might package or make their products um, more sustainably. So there's, there's a couple things that I walked away with. Number one is that it, in some senses, they're, 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 they're getting people to think more about circular design, designers to think about circular design and one of the reasons I love that is because 
mean, so many of these are, are really sort of brand new startups and inventors. And if you get people thinking about this at the beginning, it's so much easier um, to to be doing things right from the beginning rather than to rethink, you know, to re re-engineering something, you know, halfway in the middle of, of, of a product design. So, so is this something that's going to be required or is this just an optional? Yeah. What's going on? Super question. Super question. So there's two things here at, at play. One is that there's this resource center where you as a designer, if you care, um, you know, like if you're proactive about it, can go and look and, and get ideas. They have some, some great examples. Like there's this company out of Australia called Husky Cup and they make coffee mugs made out of coffee husks, you know, so just <laughs> re reusable mugs. Um, they, they just wanted people to stop throwing cups away and just, just an interesting, um, intriguing idea and so forth. The other place you will see it, and it's not, it's voluntary, it's completely voluntary, is when um, as a designer or as a, as a company that's wanting to start a funding campaign, you are asked to fill out all of these, all of this information about the product and your design and and your who you are and what you're going to do and how you're going to sell it and so forth. And now there are environmental factors built into that. So you basically are asked to talk about how you're going to be encouraging recycling, for example, whether the materials you're using are rare and could be, you know, you know, at risk in the future who you're going to use, right? So they've even got some of the human rights considerations built into this. Like, are they going to be um, making sure that the factories they use are, are sound as, as far as labor practices and, and so forth and, you know, the, and safety. So it's not, it's not mandatory, but it's, it's something now that's going to start, start popping up on, on campaign profiles and, and uh, Kickstarter hopes to help distinguish the the people that are choosing the, making those choices um, in some way. So stay tuned. It's just a, a EDF uh, basically helped by contributing a, an intern. So it's one of these great um, Climate Core projects that uh, Kickstarter wanted to do this. They got someone in there thinking differently, and they are now putting it into action. I'll be happy when the videos that go with any Kickstarter campaign, hey, here's our new thing, please help us out, um, you know, start to talk about this stuff, and 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 Kickstarter encourages the the innovators to really showcase the green innovations, even if it's only five seconds of a minute and a half video, uh, just to you know have them again be thinking about this stuff. These are all small scale things that aren't going to change the world, but it, it does get that consciousness spread that this is should be part, as you said uh, earlier. How do you build this in and uh, uh, kickstart something green. Yeah, and you know, just one final thought here. This is a great example of how a small company can do this because uh, you know I have a lot of, I love the entrepreneur um, sensibility, and I talk to a lot of them in all sorts of different markets, and they all, they often ask me, how can I do this? There's it's so expensive to do this. It's all the big companies are doing this, but I can't. And uh, this is a great example of how they can. As I said earlier, I spoke this week at the Wall Street Journal CEO Council, specifically at a breakfast sponsored and hosted by Tech Mahindra, talk about business, technology, and climate change. And here with me is the president of North America Enterprise Group for Tech Mahindra, C.T. Lakshmanan. Uh, C.T., first of all, thank you for inviting me. But second of all, why of all the topics for which you could have hosted a breakfast did you cl choose climate change? 
Well, uh, Joel, interesting question. Incidentally, you know, you made a great presentation today and it was very well received. You know, climate change has been a very passionate subject for our chairman, Anand Mahindra. Uh, he's a co-chair of the Global Climate Action Summit and uh, he leads this from the front and when you set a vision and uh, and and the culture you know it 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 generally gets down to everybody in the organization so he uh, has clearly you know gave a commitment for the group you know on achieving carbon neutrality and uh, we've exceeded our paris targets and uh, he has now said that we the mahindra group will be carbon neutral uh, much before uh, the time that we said we would and uh, so that has been a source of inspiration for all of us and uh, uh, my daughter is passionate about climate change as a subject and uh, if you ask me the true reason why I am so passionate um, I, I'm involved with this cause but I'm traveling four days a week and uh, all I seem to have time is to do customer meetings and back and uh, and at best helping you know uh, elderly women and men uh, shorter men get their uh, bags out of the overheads so I was wondering how can Tech Mahindra get involved in, in climate change as a subject and how we can make that as a part of what we do every day so that uh, we are contributing our bit to save the planet so, so is this a business opportunity for you or is this simply a matter of doing the right thing? It's very clearly one, doing the right thing uh, for a cost that's bigger than you and yes, it's going to qualitatively way improve the way people live and work it's going to make our customers more profitable uh, and it is going to make us look good uh, you know in front of society and so it's a win-win on every single parameter you can think of so give us an example of how we talked a little bit about ai artificial intelligence of of how that's enabling uh, your customers to reduce their footprint and how that's become a business opportunity for tech mahindra yeah, and I would like to combine artificial intelligence and digital technologies, you know, all combined together, which is the Internet of Things. And, uh, uh, you know, as I said, we are fortunate to be living at a time when network, mobility, analytics, cloud security, sensors, uh, 4G, 5G are all coming together. And so uh, I want to give you a couple of quick examples. Uh, we've uh, just done a smart city implementation in Jabalpur, a city in India where we've installed smart sensors on, on waste bins, community waste bins, and uh, the sensors send data to a central dashboard indicating if they're full or not. With this information, the city has been able to plan a waste pickup on fuel-efficient routes. And obviously, as we discussed earlier, uh, this also leads to decongestion, uh, uh, savings uh, from a fuel usage standpoint, uh, and, uh, and economically, uh, you know, for the better for Jabalpur. And so, the Another group company within our Mahindra group takes food waste at Jabalpur and has converted into 50 megawatts of electricity that's powering 18,000 homes. And uh, if this can be a small microcosm, and if you take a step back and think how big this can be, if many people join this battle, you know, we can, we can really make a change. Yeah. So do you see any downsides to the use of all this technology? We, we hear about AI maybe having, you know, a dark side, I don't know. Uh, or is this all just, it depends on how you use it. Do you see any problems with security or privacy or anything else as you guys are using it? You know, absolutely. You know, if you go back, every time, you know, um, the population has evolved, uh, there has been challenges. For example, you know, when, when the internet came, you know, there is dark web, there's porn, there's a whole lot of issues. But would we go back and say, hey, you know, we're not, we're going to stay back in that old world. So development is going to happen. AI is real. 
AI will be visible, AI will be invisible, it will be a part of business and it will be like the air we breathe. We won't even know that AI is there, so it's going to be there. And hence what we need to do is to find out ways and means. The government has to catch up on regulations, uh, the industry has to come together to ensure that we lay down uh, norms uh, you know, under which we would operate, under which we would regulate uh, to make it as safe as possible. But there will be aberrations and, uh, and that's a reality that we need to live with. And what do you see the implications are for all this technology for the people of India and the ability to, to bring many more of them into the, the market economy and electrified and, and, and all of the basics that not everybody there has? I think the possibilities are, are immense. We are excited about the journey that we have taken. And uh, it's just not waste management alone. There's a whole lot of other areas that we are working in. And the idea is to reach as deeper into the villages as possible. Because as you can understand, 70% of India is villages. And, uh, you know, so the focus is to take it to the grassroots as much as possible. So I think uh, we're just about at the... We, we're, we're skimming the cream right now. There's lots more that we can do, and that's exciting. Lots to do. C.K. Lakshman is the president of Tech Mahindra North America Enterprise Business. Thanks so much for having me here. Thank you, Joel, and look forward to working with you. One of our ongoing features on GreenBiz.com every week is a book excerpt section called Green Biz Reads, and we had a lot of fascinating entries for that for that uh, series. One of the ones that's just crossed our desk is, is Accelerate This, a super not boring guide to startup accelerators and clean energy entrepreneurship by Ryan Kushner. We'll hear a little bit more about him in a moment, but here to talk about the book is Shauna Rappaport. She is our Vice President and Executive Director for Verge. And first of all, I have to say, Shauna, congratulations on your new role here. Thank you, Heather. So just curious, number one, why is this a good time for us to be considering this this sort of book? Why is it a good time for us to be looking more closely at accelerators in general? Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of confusion, frankly, across the landscape. You hear about incubators and accelerators, and I think much of the spirit behind this book was really about demystifying um, that landscape and really understanding how do these programs work? What's the difference between them? Whether, whether you're a startup or an investor or you're a corporate that's looking to better understand how to work with startups, um, this book does a really, really great job, per the title, of breaking down a pretty complex topic in a really accessible way. And, you know, to the extent that the Valley of Death continues to be a really significant chasm for so many of the innovators that are working to bring um, important solutions to market, um, I think this book is a is a really interesting and valuable take on on how to advance a lot of these markets. So, of course, Verge is a place where innovation and um, accelerating innovation is celebrated. And we have this great program you've developed over the years called Verge Accelerate. And uh, we meet a lot of incubators and venture capitalists and promoters of innovation through that through that program. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you know Ryan. I think I believe you, you, you came across him through that program. And um, 
So give us some context for why he's a good author for this book. Yeah, well, Ryan has been working at the heart of clean tech and and innovation and startups for many years in a number of different contexts. He actually helped launch um, a, a program with Energy Accelerator and has worked really closely with Calcef. So I think of all of the people to help really dive deep into connecting with all of these incubators and accelerators to really help um, uh, unpack that. That ecosystem, he is a fantastic person to do it. And without further ado, here is Shauna's interview with Ryan. So this book is uh, a year, but really a career in the making. So I started working five years ago in the accelerator field, uh, specifically with Elemental Accelerator in Honolulu. I helped him open up the San Francisco office, then went on to help create the Free Electrons program, and now work with programs all around the world in clean energy, carbon tech, ocean tech, a variety of fields. About a year ago, uh, New Energy Nexus, which is part of the California Clean Energy Fund, uh, got sort of a group of nonprofits together, including the World Bank, Asian Development Bank, uh, and World Wildlife Foundation, basically pulled funds and said, Ryan, we need uh, effectively a, a best practices guide, something that defines what this space is, looks at critical questions like, does it work? How do they work? the world's best programs, what makes them tick, and what do they tell to entrepreneurs? And so the process effectively was identifying the world's best programs in clean energy and really beyond, and asking them, how do they do what they do? What's their secret sauce? Both internally, how do they work as a program, which is really important for the entire global accelerator field to have sort of a best practices guide. And also, what do they tell entrepreneurs? So for you know, Y Combinator, that's creating companies like uh, Stripe and Dropbox, how do they do that? Like, how do they actually uh, help take young, sort of ambitious startups to the next level and help them grow and become scalable, impactful companies? This is really important, um, sort of turning the sort of art of uh, entrepreneurship and startups more into a science, um, and especially for fields that are in the impact space, like energy, climate, ocean tech, clean meat, and beyond. It's really important that we sort of are efficient about our efforts. And so obviously a huge part of the function and purpose of many of these incubators and accelerators is to really help support entrepreneurs in getting over that chasm, right? That oftentimes leads to to a majority of companies, a vast majority, never really truly scaling into their full potential. Talk a little bit about what you found. What were some of the, you know, in system speak, the key leverage points or as Buckminster Fuller talks about the key trim tabs when we look at what's really needed to help support and scale, grow the markets for, for these entrepreneurs to succeed? Right. It's a great question. Well, we're talking about effectively valleys of death. Startups, as they're growing and they're looking for critical things like customers and funding and other forms of support, how do they grow and how do they basically stay alive as they're looking to earn revenue and then they're looking as to finance their growth and become large scalable companies? There's, there, there's a bunch of, uh, of various barriers. They say that uh, nine out of 10 startups will fail. I think that's actually a pretty ambitious number because a lot of the startups that are part of the servers never really make it. I think it's probably you know one out of 50 startups actually crosses the line. So there's tons and tons of barriers. The things that really help uh, give a lot of support from accelerator programs, really the best practices are sustained support over time. And yes, it's money, but money comes and money burns out. The, the most sophisticated... Uh, accelerators that I talked to and that I've worked on and worked in really think a couple steps down the line and help connect startups with their with their customers 
So it's really, it's taking sort of an extension of the, the lean startup process, which is sort of being responsive to customer feedback in a sort of a build, measure, learn cycle, and applying that same philosophy to the accelerator itself. So what I say is sort of accelerator 1.0, sort of the classic model is, hey, we as an accelerator program, we're going to pick the companies, then shop them around to VCs. Accelerator 2.0 is really more of a, a customer-driven process, where you take the people that are going to be the, the customers or the funders of those startups at the end and bring them in earlier in the process, have them help pick the companies in the first place and get them interested in working with them. So that's really interesting because the other question that I wanted to ask you is about, I mean, obviously VCs and angels are a huge part of the funding landscape, but corporate venture is real. And, you know, in our world at GreenBiz and the Verge Conference, there are a lot of companies that are coming to our events and a part of our community that are have real problems to solve and have there's an advantage to working directly with startups. What's what sort of your, your message, your call to action to the business community as they think about both a addressing their own problems and unlocking those opportunities, but also helping accelerate the markets for clean energy um, and clean energy entrepreneurship more broadly. Yeah, absolutely. I actually think that companies uh, and corporations have the most to gain from accelerator processes. So for being a part of an accelerator, for having an internal accelerator, really corporations benefit the most because at the end of the day, they can both be uh, a funding partner if they have a, a VC fund or an internal fund. And they can also be customers. And so when I was working on the Free Electrons program, that was eight of the world's largest, most progressive utilities, they were really excited to both invest in these companies and use their product because it benefits them uh, sort of at two levels. Corporations have the, the most to gain because they're not really focused on doing innovation all the time, right? And so maybe there's an exceptional company you're out there that is... Uh, that has a fund and is always looking at this, but really, that's like that's really the d- domain of um, accelerators and and VCs. And so, some of the most successful companies, examples, and accelerators I've seen really are in the corporate space. TechStars, as an example, it's a turnkey corporate-driven program. If you say, "I want an accelerator," I want to look at the world's most interesting startups in you pick the vertical in med tech, fintech, clean tech, whatever it is, they will find them, bring them to you, run a fantastic program. And then you have the opportunity as a corporation to say, this is who we're interested in working with in the long term. And so that really works. Well, Ryan, congratulations on the launch of your new book. It is really engaging. I encourage everyone to get your own copy and take a poke around. Um, Really excited to see what comes next from this and to continue chatting with and working with you to grow certainly our own accelerator at GreenBiz and to help work together to move the market along. Yeah, thanks so much. I think that uh, hopefully the book helps people understand what an accelerator is, takes a fresh look at it. It's a really important piece of our innovation uh, infrastructure. So thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. Lovins has been a champion of sustainable development for more than 35 years. She has consulted on sustainable agriculture, energy, water, and climate policies for governments, communities, and companies, obviously well-connected. Known as a founder of sustainable management, she is currently a professor of sustainable business at Bard MBA, among other duties. Lots and lots of listing here on her resume. During her career, Hunter has been recognized with dozens of awards including Time Magazine's Millennium Hero for the Planet. And she has co-authored more than a dozen books, including the bestseller, Natural Capitalism. 
Hunter joins me today to discuss her latest book, A Finer Future. Hunter, thank you so much for joining me. Heather, so good to be with you. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah. So, okay. So who should be reading A Finer Future? And how is the message different from your previous books? Who should read it? Anyone who cares about the future, which I trust would be all of us. What's different is when we wrote Natural Capitalism and even uh, the books between then and now, I was more interested in the technical details of how you solve particular problems. We're at a unique time in history. About three days ago, David Attenborough at the uh, Conference of Parties in Poland, the big climate summit, basically said we are staring at the end of civilization because of the, the damage that we're doing to the planet. And he's, his is only one of a number of voices saying essentially the same thing. I mean, don't do this because it'll put you in a very bad mood, but you can Google near-term human extinction and find what purports to be science saying that humans go extinct perhaps as early as within 10 years. The Dark Mountain Project in the UK says, get over it, grieve, and then party on. It's over. We've lost. I think this is the most profoundly irresponsible position that a person could take. When rabbits are threatened, they freeze. When humans are threatened, we entrepreneur. And it is now particularly urgent that we, we begin this entrepreneurial process of crafting a world that works for everyone. To do that, we have to throw out the old story that has been guiding us the humans are basically greedy bastards, but that's okay because the market is perfect. And in a perfect market, you against me will somehow aggregate to the greater good for all. No, it won't, and it hasn't. And it's what has brought us to the edge of this cliff, this neoliberal narrative that we don't need government. All we need is this perfect market has ruined much of what we, we know of as the planet, life, we're losing life at a faster rate than since the dinosaurs went extinct. And it's not even making us happy. We now know that employees are more productive, thus more profitable when they are engaged in something bigger than themselves, when you have purpose in your life, when you have connections to others. This approach that's been called humanistic management is, I think, a much better narrative of who we are as human beings than the neoliberal narrative. But if, if you ask a neolib, what should we do? They have answers that are short, simple, as H.L. Mencken said, wrong. But they can spit them right out. If you ask most of us, what do we stand for? What, what should we do? Crickets. We don't have a story. So the book is an attempt by four of us to set forth the essence of a new narrative in order to achieve what Bucky Fuller called for, which is a world that works for everybody. Right. So I want to go to something that um, your co-author, John Fullerton, um, has described. He, he's got this term, and you got this term that, that's really part of the uh, central part of the book, regenerative economy, right? And it's defined as... Uh, economic vigor, vigor is a product of human and societal vitality, right? Vitality, I love that word, 
rooted in ecological health and the inclusive development of human capabilities and potential. So that uh, you know is sort of a different economic concept than than what we were just kind of what we've been living in is at least in the United States. And certainly a transition of that nature can't happen overnight. So like a, we've got these great business leaders listening to this podcast. Where do you start, right? So that's a pretty big uh I think I think in general I think people get paralyzed that rabbit uh reaction you were talking about is sort of like, "Oh, <laughs> where do I run first or or where do I go first, I suppose, is the better verb. Well, there are two answers, I think, to that. One is John's paper, Regenerative Capitalism, is, I think, one of the most important papers that's been written, oh gosh, in, in the last 50 years or so. And John and I argue about terms, about details, but the, the core concept that Nature is sustainable, not because it's set out to be, but because it's regenerative. And this regenerative process is going to be core to enabling us to survive. And that we need to shift the economy away from the the extractive to ways of doing business that enhance all forms of capital, not just money and stuff, but human and natural capital and spiritual capital and community capital that we redefine what we mean by capital. And we set out to do this in natural capitalism. That term never took on. But John's term regenerative, actually, it owes back to Buckminster Fuller. But John's the one who has been popularizing it with uh, with a little help from his friends. This concept is catching on. So one, read John's paper. But two, take a look at what's happening in the world. Change is happening around us incredibly rapidly. My friend Tony Seba, Stanford prof, says inevitably by 2030, the world will be 100% renewably powered. He says that it'll happen because of four reasons. Fall in the cost of solar, fall in the cost of storage, the electric car, and the driverless car. And it's happening. General Motors just announced they're shutting six plants, thereby unemploying 34,000 people because they're working on the driverless car, the driverless electric car. Solar and wind and the renewables are now cheaper everywhere on the planet than fossil energy. Coal is dying. Oil will be right behind it. If Tony's right, we're looking at the dissolution in value over the next 10 years of oil, gas, coal, uranium, nuclear, the utility industry, the auto industry, the banks that hold paper in them, the insurance companies and pension funds that are invested in them, this is going to be the mother of all disruptions. And it will become an economic necessity, as well as a survival necessity, to transform our economy. Now, if Tony's right, we solve the climate crisis at a profit, well, we solve half of it at a profit, as we're crashing the global economy, we solve the other half at a profit by implementing regenerative agriculture, by grazing animals on grasslands the way they've always co-evolved. And if you want a better demonstration of this, take a look at the video, Keys to Building a Healthy Soil by Gabe Brown, Uh, was going broke being a corn soybean farmer in North Dakota, Switch to regenerative agriculture is now wildly profitable and is taking carbon out of the air and putting it back into the soil naturally and profitably. 
if we did these practices on all the world's grasslands, over about 30 years' time, we get back to 280 parts per million concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, i.e. we've solved the climate crisis at a profit. Business as usual is dead. It is the recipe for economic disaster, social catastrophe, and a world that you won't be very happy living in. And we have all the technologies we need to solve the problems facing us. This is what we do in the book is lay out what's possible, how we transform corporations to be more profitable as they're managing in more humanistic ways, how to transform finance so that we share the wealth across all of society, how to transform agriculture, energy, governance, what this means in communities, and why the people who are beginning to do this are living lives that are more fulfilling and more remunerative. This is just better business. So I've got two questions for you. I think about this a lot. Is there a region or theater in which our collective actions would be most impactful? In other words, you know, should we go to where we, you know, the established economies that exist and try to fix them? Or is it better for us to go put our energy into an economy that's developing rapidly and get things right there? The best place to work is where you have the ability to drive change. That may be in your own home. It may be in your neighborhood. It may be in your community. All of us can walk into a city council. We can get to know the names of our council people. It's a little harder to get to know your congressperson, senator, but many of us do that. Uh, I did that, for example, here in Colorado with a man named Jared Polis, who was my congressman. He then announced he was running for governor. I walked up, stuck my hand out and said, I'm with you. We just elected him governor. Next day, he called up, asked if I'd be on his transition team. So we're now looking at how do we transform the state of Colorado to be regenerative. And Jared is using this term. Sometimes you get a chance to play at the international level. The, you know, David Attenborough's speech at, uh, in Katowice in, in Poland may inspire the young people. There is a, there's a thing now, the, the UN has offered up a people's seat at the climate summit where anyone, hashtag people's seat, can write in what they would like to see the world's leaders do at the, uh, the Conference of Parties on Climate. The recent elections showed that young people, people traditionally thought of as dispossessed, coming together can transform politics. So find what you care about and live a life that shows it. What gives you confidence that we can pull this off? The speed with which the transformation in energy policy is happening and I've been working in this field, as you mentioned, for a very long time. I'm older than dirt. And I didn't think I would live to see the change. And with the bad news that's coming at us, the, uh, the recent IPCC report, we have 12 years to turn around climate change, the, uh, the recent federal assessment that it really is worse than we've thought, the California fires, the hurricanes. And I was beginning to wonder if, uh, if humanity is... is going to pass this final exam. 
but I'm seeing it happening. I'm seeing, and I drove up to the gym this morning and on either side of me were electric cars. So we had a whole row of electric cars with my little leaf there. The, the speed with which the price of renewable energy has fallen. And it doesn't matter so much who's in the White House. What matters is the economics of renewable energy. So have you put solar on your house? If not, run the numbers. It's probably cheaper for you to do that than buying power from the utility. I was just on the phone this morning with some folk from a utility who are asking, how do we survive in this deregulated world and realizing they now have to compete, they have to become their own competition if they want to survive. We're going to transform every institution in society, most of the technologies, and if we, if we do this with, with courage, with ambition, we can build that finer future. will a particular building material or product affect a construction project's carbon footprint? Researching the answer to that question isn't all that easy. A group of industry leaders in the building product space, including flooring company Interface, design firm Gensler, construction manager Skanska, ceiling manager Armstrong, insulation company Certainteed, and wallboard producer USG, is collaborating to create one possible solution. Their group, called Materials CAN, which is short for Carbon Action Network, is working on a database called the Embodied Carbon Calculator for Construction. The resource includes about 17,000 low-carbon options for materials such as concrete, steel, and gypsum. Joining me on GreenBiz 350 to discuss the initiative is Lisa Conway, Vice President of Sustainability for Interface. Lisa, thank you for joining us. Yeah, of course. Now, there are many different organizations offering calculators and tools for researching embodied carbon. What makes what Materials Can is doing unique? So Materials Can really exists in order to both kind of build awareness and provide education and also create case studies that will eventually probably end up using a tool. Everyone, of course, wants the perfect tool for whatever they're trying to do. And um, Skanska and Microsoft were initial funders for the EC3 tool, which stands for Embodied Calculator for Construction. And basically the thing that makes it different is that it has the ability to take product-specific EPDs, which for a long time have been um, touted as being um, not comparable, and basically takes some differing data assumptions in the background, which are also known as, ca as product category rules, and makes the, the variance between differing product category rules visible so that we can make directionally accurate decisions on products based on their carbon footprint. Hmm. How will the organization be governed? Well, we're actually just kind of a loose collective right now. Hmm. Um, we're not any sort of official nonprofit. There are lots of um, academic um, based institutions like the University of Washington and the Carbon Leadership Forum, um, and then a subgroup of that called the Embodied Carbon Network that do a lot of the education and research in this area. 
we are really just built on taking action. So all of the great information that's out there, how can we actually put that into practice right now and address carbon emissions associated with products right now? Right. Okay. So you did mention this already, but the database focuses on environmental product declarations, right? So this probably, I think you just answered this question, but where does that data come from and how is it vetted and verified? Well, basically EPDs, um, which stands for, of course, environmental product declarations, have a, um, I guess, a shelf life of three years. So Interface was one of the first um, manufacturers to have a product-specific EPD for carpet tile. That was uh, approximately 10 years ago. We were under version one of product category rules for carpet tile. Then a lot of the, um, the industry kind of piled on and did theirs in version two. And then when we were up for renewal, it was version three, just to, you know, complicate things. So this tool was really needed because we need to be able to navigate those, um, those different product category rules so that we can actually use this great information that's kind of buried in an EPD. You know, it's probably on page 17 of 23 of a document under the acronym GWP for global warming potential. They're not exactly the, the sexiest document for a designer to go rummage through um, when they're looking for a product. And product labels don't provide uh, carbon footprint information with the exception of um, Green Circle Certified Environmental Facts. So there's, there's a real need for this information to be visible, to be transparent, and to be actionable. So that's what we're helping to guide in the industry. So does, does the database include products that aren't sold by the companies that make up Materials can, um, or is it just focused absolutely. on? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the tool is actually um, being created, um, door, like kind of aligned with the project schedule for, um, for Microsoft in the state of Washington. They're building um, 18 new buildings. Mm. So it really started with um, core and shell materials, primarily, um, I mean, all materials, but they really started with Concrete, um, which I didn't know you could even have an on-demand EPD for concrete <laughs> right on site um, based on specific mixtures. So that was the biggest piece to build out. Um, and steel and, you know, some of the things that go along with core and shell. Now the tool is starting to build out interior products. So you see the four categories represented through materials can, but then it'll also be built out to furniture, to um, fabrics, I mean, to, to even the smallest detail. Really anything with a product-specific EPD can go into it. So it's meant to be core and shell and interiors. The reason for our group forming is really specific to um, interiors because concrete and steel get a lot of attention out there in the world. Um, But ideally, we're working with the buildings that we have from an embodied carbon perspective. And when we deal with the buildings that we already have, then we're really focused on, okay, and what what materials are being specified for the fit out. And that's when we get into flooring being, um, having potentially the highest carbon impact or potentially the lowest. But um, once you know that information, you can make decisions to get to the lowest and then ideally carbon neutral and even carbon storing interiors. 
so that we can really start to be part of the solution to global warming instead of just measuring how much less of the problem we are. So actually, Microsoft kind of started this because it needed this information itself. It, it did. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. And it's any, anytime you can ride on the coattails of a project that's a real project, that's always a good thing. <laughs> right. So, you know, just to, the, to that point, um, so they're, they're a customer, um, like, and you have certain organizations that are part of this, this group t- today. What other companies might we see join in the future? Like, is there a plan to grow it? There is a plan to grow it. Um, I, it, it will probably happen organically for now. We have a lot of interest in becoming a quote unquote member. And because we're, we're so focused on creating case studies right now and not growing membership at the present moment, we want to really make the case and be able to let people know how they can prioritize the embodied carbon of their interiors. Um, so we'll probably loosely add partners um, as we go. We've had some really great people reach out, you know, in the circular economy um, industry. We've had other manufacturers as well, and we will grow it um, once we once we get ourselves off the ground and have some great content to share. Um, but there really isn't any reason that you have to be a member in order to prioritize embodied carbon. Um, we've, you know, it's, it would probably be the perfect and most ideal project ever to have all six partners be on a specific project that prioritizes embodied carbon, but that doesn't have to be the case. I've been talking to universities, um, to other types of customers that can do this today without being a member. Um, but hopefully the, the content that our membership and group provides will help more and more people take this on. Great. Okay. So we're sitting at the end of the year. It's almost 2019. My goodness. Yeah. So what can we expect from Materials Can during 2019? Um, 2019 is really going to be the year of of pilot projects and case studies. So um, anyone out there who's listening who has a project, um, we've got a great uh, start as a result of our launch at Green Build this year where we had just a small lunch with, um, with some building owners, uh, design firms, et cetera, who identified anything from very small pilot projects to real estate portfolios as opportunities for prioritizing embodied carbon. So as we work on those projects, um, we're happy we're at materialsken.org. And um, you can just there's a form submittal there and let us know a project um, that you would be interested in working on. And we can kind of assign a group member to kind of help you through that process, do additional presentations and provide education to project teams. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization, stories and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're over there, check out the link to our other podcasts, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Our email address is 350 at greenbiz.com. You can hit us up anytime. We love to hear from you. Heather and I will be back next week. I will be in Karwice, Poland for another weekly edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.